Well, this evening we are continuing our series in Romans, and we're going to read the Scriptures together just now. We're going to uh, come back again to Romans chapter 4. We're thinking particularly, John's going to be thinking particularly about the uh, later part of Romans chapter 4. And so just now we're going to read uh, the later part of that chapter from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 9. Now, if you've got a pew Bible, it's page uh, 1131, 1131 of the Pew Bibles, Romans chapter 4. Uh, Paul has been speaking about the blessedness of those who have had their sins forgiven, and he continues in verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since that his body, since that he was a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins 
and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word. Amen. Well, please do open your Bible with me uh, to Romans chapter 4 this evening. As we, uh, as we said last week, the clock beat me again, as it always seems to do. And so uh, we're, we're, back, we're back into Romans chapter 4 uh, for part 2. So Romans chapter 4 this evening. Now, is there more than one way to God? Is there more than one way? Just as many roads lead to various different destinations, uh, we can take different routes if we want to go to a certain place or town or village. Surely all roads lead us to God. Wrong. Okay, last week we thought about that. We spent considerable time thinking about how Paul had deployed Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans to help the believers see that there's only one way to be deemed right before God, and it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, and through grace alone. So, we zoomed in on the aspect of faith, and now for the second half of this chapter, we skirted over some of the little details that we want to pause tonight and mine for the gold that is there. Often, Romans chapter 4, because it's a little bit harder perhaps to read, and there's other highlights in Romans, it kind of goes into the background, and, and people miss it. So, let's, let's dive back into it tonight. So whenever we talk about faith, whenever we start to think of ourselves as Christians, we often measure ourselves against others, don't we? We compare and we contrast. And we say something like, I have nowhere near the faith of such and such a person. Or that person is a super Christian. They have great faith. They're not like me. And we rank ourselves near the bottom of the Christian league table. Or perhaps tonight, if you're not a Christian, Whenever we start to talk about faith, you, you look at others, you look at other Christians, and you think, well, there's no way that I could do what they do. They seem to have some sort of superpower. I'll never be as good as them. And so you use that as an excuse. They have great faith, but I will never be like them. Now, that need not be the case. Why? Well, let's look at it tonight in Romans. And we're going to see a couple of different points, and then we're going to ask, so what? But first of all, is faith all about me? Is faith all about me? Now, over the years, I've played rugby for various rugby teams, and when it came to a Thursday night of training, and the team sheet would be read out, you would all be standing in a huddle, you'd be hoping that your name would be read, but you'd also have lots of other teammates, and their names, names would be read out. And through the various teams, if, if I knew Colvin was playing, or Big Steve was playing, or Eggy, or Pipes, or Handy, you knew that you were in safe hands. Why? Well, Handy would have run over the top of someone, Pipes would have ran quickly around them, Big Steve would have ran through the middle of them, Eggy would have sidestepped them, and you knew that you had a hope of winning the match. If those guys were not on the team sheet, things looked pretty bleak. You could trust them to do something special. And whenever it comes to faith, it's very important for us to understand that faith takes its shape from its object. Faith takes its shape from its object. So if I was putting my trust into Eggy to score us a try, I knew he could do that because he had really bendy legs and he was able to skirt around people. If I was putting my trust into Pipes, I knew that he could outpace people to score a try. When it comes to our faith, 
our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith takes the shape of the object in which we trust in. And Sue Sinclair Ferguson says, the nature of faith is not dependent upon the individual who exercises it, but the object to which the faith is exercised. What's that saying? It's saying it's not about us, but rather it's about the one that we put our faith in. Faith is not inward. It's not holding up a mirror and looking at ourselves. Instead, it's looking to the one that we have our faith in. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to do in Romans chapter 4. He's trying to help the believers see, look at Abraham, but don't stop with Abraham. Don't stop with his faith, but look to the one that he had his faith in. He's leveling the ground. Paul's leveling the ground in this church in Rome. He's making sure that whether they're a Jew or whether they're from a Gentile pagan background, that they know that their faith has nothing to do with them, and it's all to do with God. Now, the question might be, what is our objective faith really like? What is God really like? What do we know about God? How does that start to shape us and to change us? If, if you imagine, uh, you know those uh, little uh, molds that you get for making ice and you pour the water in and then you try to walk them very carefully over to the freezer and try not to spill any. Well, as we come into the faith, as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're molded into the shape of our object. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like for us? Can we trust Jesus? Is He faithful? Is He able? Well, look back to Romans chapter 1. Do we start to see some of the things that Paul has been teaching the church about why they can place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So, Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. What does Paul tell the church? He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And you know that he could go on, but you see it there, his eternal power, his invisible attributes, his divine nature. He wants the church to dwell on these things. You are not placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ into some uh, empty abyss. It's not some sort of uh, cross our fingers faith, hope for the best, sprinkle a, little bit of, sprinkle a little bit of glitter and hope that we make it in the end. No, this is the one true God. Think about these things. Meditate on them. See the one that you put your faith in, what He is like. It's not, faith is not about us, but it's the one in whom we're directed to. And so we exercise our faith. We place our faith, we place our trust in the almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, never-changing God. And that's what, we're, what, that's what is being illustrated for us in Abraham's life. Look, look at verse 19. You see, last week we were thinking that Abraham was saved in exactly the same way that the New Testament believers are saved. And he's saved by faith. And then in verse 19, look at what happens. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. If there's any reason for Abraham to doubt, it is this. He's 100 years of age, and the Lord has told him that he's going to have a child. Now, I don't think we have anybody here tonight who is 100. But if the Lord told you that you were going to have a child, I think you would think that that's a nightmare rather than a great blessing, okay? 
And Sarah, what happened, Sarah? Look at verse 19. When he considered the barrenness, the deadness of Sarah's womb, Sarah was elderly. We, we read of her in Genesis that whenever she's told this, she literally laughs. There's no way this is possible, humanly speaking. But you see, Abraham recognized the one that he had his faith in, the one that was able to do wonders, the one that had come and had lifted him literally by almost by the back of the neck and dragged him out of paganism and set his promises upon him, the rescuing God. And remember, Abraham didn't have the Scriptures to hand. We're only in, in Genesis chapter 12 whenever we encounter him. And yet he had his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked forward to Christ, and he had his faith in God. You see, faith is never dealt a blow by circumstances or by obstacles. We've got to know that. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is never dealt a blow by circumstances or by obstacles. Because what is the foundation of our faith? It's the promises of God. And what's below that foundation? Well, it's the rock of God Himself. So as we place our faith into Jesus, what are we doing? We're putting our faith in the promises that He has given to us, in the promises that the Lord has revealed to us and given to us in His Word. It is sure, it is certain. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, so we claim these promises. Faith is always focused on what God alone has promised to do and accomplish, again borrowing that from Sinclair Ferguson. And again, another quote from Ferguson, he's getting a lot of bandwidth tonight, but he's so helpful. He says this, faith is like a magnet, and it is drawn to the promises that God has given His people. We've got to remember this for where we're going in just a moment, because it is a nonsense to think that we, if we have greater faith, then greater things will be accomplished. Let's make that really clear, because it's really unhelpful whenever someone comes to a brother or sister who's ill or who is facing death, and they're told, if you would just have a little bit more faith, then you will be healed. That is destructive. It's not what the Bible teaches For those who say that they have great faith that God will do this or do that, well, forget about it if that does not rest upon the promises of God. If you in some way have some imaginary situation dreamt up in your head that you do not find upon the pages of Scripture and in the promises contained there, then forget about it. Now, someone might say, well, John, what about that that phrase, if you have faith, you can move the mountains. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus speaks and He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What is Jesus saying? It seems like that has just undercut all that we have been thinking about. Well, does this mean that if we have enough faith that we can do whatever we want? If we believe hard enough, we can accomplish miraculous things. If I just conjure up enough faith, then I'll be healed. I'll make a million pounds. I'll find the partner of my dreams. 
Some within the Christian faith try to teach that. Some motivational speakers try to teach that. Health, wealth, prosperity. However, if we read the context of Matthew and of the Bible as a whole, we begin to see that using faith like some sort of magical power is not what Jesus is advocating. Faith is not a mustering of the will or of power to wield. Faith comes from trusting in God and in His will. Faith is the mustard seed. And the point being that God does the miraculous things. We don't contribute to it. Jesus is saying to His disciples, largely in the context of this in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, about salvation and about forgiveness, the things that seem impossible. You were dead, Mark says. You were dead in your sin. Nothing is possible for you, but with God, all things are possible. Mark chapter 10. Now, we can rip that out of context and do crazy things with it, but that'll be really unhelpful. It's talking about salvation. And in Luke's gospel, it's about forgiveness. And again, in Matthew's gospel, it's talking about salvation. So, we're prone to think that if we had just more faith, then God could do amazing things through us. But Jesus tells us something to the difference. The issue isn't whether we are full of faith or whether we have any faith. It's all to do about the one in who we place our faith in. What does Jesus ask His disciples? Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Do you see who I am? Who do you say that I am? Then put your faith in me. Why are you afraid whenever you're in the boat? You sit with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Trust me and not yourselves. And so, a small, of, a small amount of faith is sufficient. And our faith doesn't thrive when we think about how much faith we have. Sure it doesn't. It springs up. Our faith grows whenever we do what? Whenever we get our eyes off ourselves and we get our eyes on the Lord. That's why week after week at church, we hear of His promises. We read from His Word. His Word calls us to worship. His Word leads us into prayer. His Word comes to us again and again and again so that our faith may grow. As we pray together, as we hear brother and sister talking to one another about the promises of God, then our faith grows. As we sing together, as we study the Bible together, as we meditate on the law day and night, as we practice going into the place of prayer, as we recall pieces of Scripture, faith is not abstract. It's not some fluffy thing that's out there. Let's make sure that we as Christians reclaim this term Faith is all about our God and His promises. And Scripture never promises believers that they will be healthy or wealthy. But it does promise us, and when difficulty comes, that our Lord will be there with us. He will never leave us. His steadfast love and mercy will be there each and every morning. Great is His faithfulness. There will be rest for us one day. There will be eternal life for us one day. There will be a, a wiping away of every tear from our eyes. Suffering will be no more, and we will rule and reign with our Savior forevermore. Those are promises that we can take. 
misguided faith can lead to disaster, can't it? One example in church history is of uh, Thomas Munzer, who uh, believed that the Holy Spirit was bringing in a golden age, and he warred alongside the peasants to have a political uh, overthrow. But Munzer was inspired by fantasies when he died, and in the revolt, he passed away. His trusted spiritual revelations came to nothing because they weren't found in God's Word. So the question is for us, when do we wobble in our faith? When we look at ourselves, when we look at our earthly circumstances, when we shrink God down, when we reduce His promises, when we forget His promises. But even a mustard seed faith, a tiny, minuscule faith is powerful, not because of itself, but because of the one that it is placed upon. And I think this is the final quote from Sinclair Ferguson for the night. This is beautiful. He says, the weakest believer gets into the same heaven as the strongest believer that has ever lived. The weakest believer and the strongest get the exact same Christ. The weakest believer and the strongest get the exact same Christ. And if you say, well, I'll get to heaven through my own faith. My faith is all about me and what I've done and what I can conjure up. Then you've got it all wrong. Our faith is weak, but He is strong. Our faith is based on His promises and them alone. And in terms of Abraham, all of the circumstances looked poor, don't they? But what does it say? He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised, fully convinced that the Lord would bring this to fruition? Are we fully convinced that the Lord will return and will judge the living and the dead? Are we fully convinced that He will build the church? Are we fully convinced that He's here for us? Are we fully convinced tonight, Christian, of His forgiveness? Or are you living a hampered life, carrying sin and shame and guilt? Are we convinced In the King James Version, it says that, that Abraham did not stagger. He didn't shrink back. Verse 20, the NIV and ESV translates it waver. He didn't stagger. The promises of God were what he latched onto, and they are what made him grow strong as he walked a pilgrim through this land. And so too for us. Build in the promises. What do I need in the morning? Whenever you're anxious, whenever you're, you're falling apart at the seams, what do we need? We need the promises of God. Not some self-help motivational speech. I need the promises of Christ. And whenever we stare death in the face as brothers and sisters, what do we need? We're going to be petrified internally. What do we need in that moment? We need the promises of Christ. Read them again. Tell me them again. Tell me the old, old story. And the conclusion of this, of all of this, is that in Christ we have all that we need to face every single day. The hymn writer puts it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know 
I know he holds the future. Our faith is not about ourselves. It's based on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his promises. A second question that I want to address, and again the clock is going to beat us tonight, is on baptism. We talked about it last week, okay? What part does baptism play in my justification? What part does it play? In this passage, what do we see? We see a lot about circumcision, and we, we wonder what is going on. It's quite hard for us to read. And you might say, well, John, baptism's not mentioned in the passage, and you'd be exactly right, but circumcision is. Now, circumcision is the old sign of the covenant. Males were to be circumcised. Now, that is changed in the New Testament to baptism, and we hear on the day of Pentecost that the exact same promise that was for Abraham is now for the believers and for their children. And Jesus expands the, the covenant, doesn't he? It was once just for males and for the Jewish people. Now it is for all people, male and female, for all who will believe. So what is going on whenever Paul talks here about circumcision? It's really important for us. Again, it's to level the playing field. Remember where we are in Romans. All have fallen short to level the church. He's trying to raise the church up, but first of all, he has to level it so everybody's on the same ground, on equal footing. And so the overall logic here is simple. Abraham was justified by faith, and he was given a gift to mark him and his family as different. You see it there, verse 9 and verses 10. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before circumcision. God was doing a new thing. He had pulled Abraham from paganism. He had justified him. He had saved him. And now he gives him the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Now, at this point, a Baptist might jump up and say, see, see what we, see, what we have here in this passage. The sign was given as a seal of the righteousness, so therefore the order is saved and then baptized. And I want to say, absolutely, right on for a pagan. Because in verse 11, what do we see? The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believed without being circumcised. That means Jew and Gentile, verse 11. Everyone, that the uncircumcised Gentiles as they are brought into the church can look to Abraham and say, look, Abraham didn't have the sign and then it was administered to him. And so we are in, as it were. We can follow in his footsteps. That's the exact thing that Paul then goes on to say in verse 12. For the Gentiles will walk in the footsteps of the faith, saying Abraham was like the Gentiles. He was justified before the sign and the seal. Good. We've established that. But then the Jew might pipe up in verse 13 and say, but for the promises was to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. And so it is for Abraham that he was justified by faith alone. And then the sign and seal given. But for his children, it was the reverse. The sign and the seal was given to mark them as part of God's people. This gift that God had given 
to mark them out as different. And what would they do? Look, they would follow in the footsteps of faith, verse 12. And verse 13, they would lay hold of the inheritance that is theirs. But what does Paul go at great lengths to underline? Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law. As a little one is brought under the sign and the seal, it's not an automatic right. It's not that that makes them part of the church. They have to grow. They have to take hold of this sign and seal by faith. They can't just be an adherent, but they have to walk in the footsteps of those of their parents who go before, just as Abraham's children did. There's lots more that we could say, but that'll be for another night. This is, is perhaps complicated on one level as you read it, but do ask questions about it if you wish afterwards. Finally, how does this all change my life? As we look at Romans chapter 4, as we see the order, as we see that, that Abraham is saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, as we see how our faith is shaped by our God and not by our circumstances, how does this change? Well, it changes us. In, in case we've wandered off the track or we've got lost in all that talk about baptism and circumcision, come with me to the end of this chapter, because this is where uh, Paul takes, as it were, a massive hammer, and he drives the nail completely home. Verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, this is one of the, the shortest and sweetest summaries of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does Paul drive at the very end, this nail? What does he drive at home for? Look, it's all about Christ. It's all about Him. Don't miss this. Don't get caught up in the weeds. It's all about Christ. Our faith relies and rests completely on the one who was delivered up and who was raised for our justification. And so our faith rests on the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. This language of being delivered up, what do we see in that? What does Paul teach us? This is judicial language. Jesus being delivered over, remember, to the chief priests and delivered over to Pilate. Just as Isaiah 53 will summarize how Jesus was delivered over. The father delivering up his son. You see the link back to Abraham, the subtle link. Abraham walked up the mountain with Isaac, ready to do what? Ready to deliver over his firstborn son. And what does the Lord say? Wait, stop. I will provide, and he provides a ram. And so Abraham's son is spared because the father will one day do what? He will deliver up his only son upon the cross of Calvary, the true and final son of Abraham, delivered over. And then he would raise him for our justification. 
You see, if Jesus is still dead in a, in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem, then we're finished. We've wasted our time. We're deluded. But the fact that Jesus Christ is not in the tomb, that he has risen from the dead, proves and authenticates all the promises that find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ that mean that we can walk by faith and not by sight. You see, again, the subtle link back to the Old Testament. What happened with the, the high priest? The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would tie a cord around him. And as he would offer up a sacrifice, he would then emerge again if that sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. And that's how the people would know that the sacrifice was pleasing, because he would emerge again from the Holy of Holies. And so as Christ emerges from the grave, what do we see? That the sacrifice was acceptable to the Lord, that the only perfect man who ever lived paid the price for us, his piece of worship, his sacrificial worship was enough. It was accepted. And so he was raised for our justification. And Christian tonight, this means that it's not just a pardon. That's sometimes where we stop, isn't it? That we're forgiven. But it's so much more. Remember last week we thought about how the Lord Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us, imputed upon us, transferred to us, counted to us, given to us. You have been forgiven. Yes, you are free from your sin, but you have been justified to what? To adoption as sons and daughters. His righteousness imputed to us. And this all means that tonight, Christian, you're safe in the Lord's hands. That you rest on the promises of Him who promises to lead us safely home, who promises to be with us every day, who promises to minister to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, who promises to come and to reveal Himself to us week after week as we worship in this place. His promises are enough our good shepherd king, our warrior king, our savior. He will do exactly as he has said he will do. And that means that we will all meet again, that we will be with him in eternity, and he will remake this world, and I'll see you there if we don't meet again. Let's pray as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you that tonight our faith is nothing to do with ourselves, so that no one may boast, but we will boast in our Savior, the one who promises us eternal life. You, Lord, promise that you will bring justice, that you will judge and then that we will rule with you and dwell with you and be your people. Would that sustain us? That is what we need to know, the, the promises of the good news of the gospel again and again and again. Lord, we so quickly forget them. And once we take our eyes off you, we crumble and wobble. And so tonight, plant us upon your Son, 
the rock that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are weak, but He is strong. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.